I'm thinking of a topic. I don't know what to call it yet. I'm working on the topic. I'm thinking either I'm going to preach about God without religion or Christ without religion or the gospel without religion, but it's going to be without religion. That is for sure. And um, I decided to teach a little bit. Sometimes on, you know, we, we kind of give a nice little message and we try to have some teaching nuggets, but I want to dig a little deeper. And so uh, you stay with me. I'm not going to address the topic per se today, just to say that I'm going to address something that a lot of Christians struggle with all over the world. You know, in the economy of the world, things are paid with money. Uh, if you go to the bank, we have had financial crises in different times of our history. And sometimes people can't pay their mortgage and they, they go to the bank and they're begging for mercy. But I'll tell you, the banks don't give the mercy. They want money. Now, sometimes uh, the government will do a bailout, uh, but the banks will still get their money because that is the currency of the world in which we live. Now, the currency in religion to gain favor with God is generally sacrifice. Uh, you have to make some kind of sacrifice uh, to make yourself acceptable to God. I think when I was uh, just um, last time in Myanmar, Burma, we were in that city where they worshiped the python, and there were these huge temples, and we have pictures. We filmed it as they, people came and brought money and put it on that fat python body, living python, and the monk was there, and they're trying to gain favor with God that way. That is true in the, the Jewish religion and sadly uh, many forms of Christianity also. And, and so uh, the book of Hebrews addresses this. It says in Hebrews 7.22, the law requires that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That was the Jewish religion and it's true for us that we have uh, the forgiveness of sin, not only for our sins, but for the whole world by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the blood of Jesus, what happened at the cross, uh, it kind of puts a stop to all those uh, religious sacrifices. It says in Hebrews 7, 27, unlike other high priests, speaking from the Jewish perspective, he, Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Everybody say once for all. Another verse along the same line is the next one, Hebrews 9, 28. Christ was sacrificed once to take away sins of many. Now, I could stand here quoting a whole range of verses that will say the same thing, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He put away our sins by one sacrifice for everyone. And so when you read this, there could be some legitimate questions. Is it really this good? Is this too good to be true, that, that Jesus, by one sacrifice, put away all sins, past present and future don't I need to do something more I mean I want to make sure that I hedge my bet so to speak here is that really is it that good could it possibly be that good because you know in the realm of human forgiveness we have when we forgive someone we like them to be really sorrowful we want someone to come to us with tears streaming down their face and say oh I'm so sorry can you please forgive me and we think oh yeah on the measure of those tears I think you're really sincere right or parents may say that I love when my son or daughter comes and says oh dad I lied I did something I took that and I'm so ready to forgive them so kind of our forgiveness, the economy of it, we want some apology. We want some promises of, I'm going to do better. Are you with me? So we kind of can measure the sincerity in the person we are uh, forgiving. But you know, God's forgiveness is not apology-based. It's not on the promise of self-improvement. It is all and totally by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is what Christ did by his death and resurrection once for all. 
It's, it's done. It's on that basis. So sometimes we think that God's forgiveness is kind of like human forgiveness, but it's, it's on a whole other level. So this is really slam dunk. I mean, it's done. It's finished. And uh, not only is it finished and done, it is perpetual. You can imagine, for example, under the Jewish uh, Old Covenant, that uh, let's say there was a man, let's call him, uh, I don't know what to call him, Jehoshaphat, not the king, another Jehoshaphat. He lives up in Galilee somewhere. And so he is burdened with sin. He feels like, oh, I've so many, I got to go to the temple. I got to go for the day of atonement. I got to go and wait when the high priest brings the sacrifice so I can be cleansed from sin. And so he goes to Jerusalem. And he's there in great anticipation. He's going to get his sins forgiven. And then the high priest comes out and says, oh, the sacrifice is accepted. He feels so relieved. But then he has a couple of days journey home to the town in Galilee where he lived. You know, he gets a little sidetracked. He was supposed to kind of travel through the night, but he gets a little tired. He hangs out with some friends. He gets home. And when he gets home, his wife is there. And she says, you're late, buddy. You were supposed to be home yesterday morning. And then he says, well, who is she to talk to me like that? So he gets all uppity. Come on now. And he, he, he pulls off, taking the name of the Lord in vain. Oh, that's a biggie. He, he, he curses a bit and he gets angry. And all of a sudden, he feels totally guilty. And now he has to wait another 365 days. And who knows how much more guilt will accumulate in those 365 days because he, he blew it. You see, this was it's a sad state of religion. Of course, many people within the Christian religion are the same. Our, our dear Catholic friends, they go to mass once a week and they get like a relief. Some Protestant Pentecostals got to go to church. They got to respond to the salvation call every Sunday just to get a little relief. Getting mighty quiet here right now. And so I, I'm merely saying that maybe we haven't fully grasped the greatness of what this simple statement means. Your sins are forgiven once for all. Uh, maybe religion got in and clouded it. You see, the, the, the word atonement means to cover. It's not a new covenant word. It's not really a word uh, even though it's translated a few times that way, but it, I would suggest it may not be the accurate translation. Atonement means to cover. And what Jesus did was not to cover sin. He put away sins. John the Baptist said, uh, look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's remission of sins. Our sins have been put away. A good a word in the Greek language is hilasterion, which is a translation from the Old Testament Hebrew, which means mercy seat. What Jesus did is he provided a mercy seat for you, for your family, and for the whole world. This is good news. And so we don't repent of our sins. We repent for the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is an accomplished fact. And so we change our mind, which is what the word repentance means, to receive the forgiveness of sins that has already been provided. And we who are gospel people, we don't see a need to join the religious parade. You know the religious parade that is always marching and doing things to get right with God? No, we don't see a need for that because we say as far as our access to God, that is settled. That is settled by one sacrifice by what Christ did. You see, this is very good for your mental health. We hear a lot about mental health problems. And one of the causes of ill mental health is religion that perpetuates insecurity. And it amazes me, having been in the church world for as many decades as I have, having preached as much as I have, how many people I have met, I'm talking about good evangelical people, who still are not sure that their sins are forgiven. They are still living in a cloud of uncertainty. 
It's so sad. I wondered, what are they, what have they been listening to? It's not good for your mental health. But to know that as far as God is concerned, he took care of that, that is a recipe for mental health. And then out of that, I find that I want to live for him who loved me and gave himself for me. It doesn't make me slothful or think, oh, God put away all my sins. Let's go sinning. Let's go on a sin binge. No, it makes us think if God has loved me and trusted me so much, I want to respond by loving God and by loving people. That's why the seldom quoted verse needs to be quoted and we quote it often, Romans 6, 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under the law. You're not under systemic religion, but you're under the grace of God. And Paul confirms that. And for those who think that teaching about God's grace and the final work of Jesus, putting away our sin, that it makes people sloppy, Paul says, I work harder than everybody. Yet not I, but the grace of God is what's working in me. I know this is controversial. When Jesus announced it in the synagogue, he said to that man who came down through the roof, son, your sins are forgiven you. It was like dropping a bomb. They started heckling and the theologians got up and they were arguing and yelling and screaming. And it's a little bit controversial even today. But it's our message to the world. Our message is not, world, you better deal with your sin. No. Our message is, world, you're not able to deal with your sin, but somebody else has dealt with your sin, so deal with him. So, so far, so far, so good. You're with me so far? Now it's going to get hot and heavy. Come on, just brace yourself. So far, we've kind of just uh, announced this. It shouldn't be new to you if you're a part of this ministry or this church that your sins are forgiven. But, you know, it's just like when you have a tasty apple, a bright red apple. You bite into it, and it bursts with flavor, and it so tastes so good, it's like exploding inside your mouth. Your taste buds are alerted, but then you bite a little bit more, and there's something yucky. There's a worm in that apple. And seeing this beautiful apple that will give you such good mental health, religion has put certain worms in there. I shall try to deworm your religious apple today, at least in this area. So let's look at some of those uh, worms. Let me look at some here. First of all, what, I put it on the screen there, what if I have not confessed all my sins? Look how quiet it got. So just before we get digging into that, let me ask you, I don't want you to answer me openly and loudly, only in your heart. If you think over the last 10 years, I don't want to do a lifetime, that's too much, the last 10 years. How many sins do you think you have committed in the last 10 years? Don't even discuss it with your spouse, just keep it to yourself. If you were to do an estimate now, when I say sin, you have to think, of course, we have the Ten Commandments. You would count those. But then you have Jesus' version, and he ups the ante. He says, you may not have murdered someone, but you got angry, so you're a murderer. So anytime you felt a flash of anger or vendetta, count that. And then Jesus said, you may not have committed adultery, but if you look with lust at a woman, maybe it could be for the, the other way as well. You're an adulterer. So you can tally all of those. And that's not like a premeditated thing. I mean, you may have just like, I looked at, oh, well, you're done. He didn't say who he premeditates and thinks is over. I'm going to go lusting. No, you, oh, no, no. Well, you had to count that. And then we have the sins of omission and commission. You commit a sin, but then also to to know what to do and not to do it, that's also a sin. So every time you were supposed to, you felt like I should pray with so-and-so, but you didn't. Anytime you felt like, oh, I should ask that person to forgive me, you didn't, tally it all. Not, not a lifetime. I mean, what's your guess? I don't know. 
a thousand sins, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, a hundred. How many times do you think you sinned in the last ten years? Don't answer, just think. That was my first question. I have a second question. Out of that number you now reached in your mind, an estimate, how many of those sins have you individually, one by one, confessed to God? Figure out a number. Third question, is there a discrepancy between the two numbers? I'm just asking. Is there a difference? Now some will say, well, you know, I can only confess the sins I remember. Oh, so the Bible says that the wages of sin is death if you remember it. Because then there's a solution, then amnesia is your savior. And so if you want to do it that way, you get so drunk you can't remember a thing except that you got drunk so you can repent of that. And whatever you did while you were drunk doesn't count because you can't remember. You see, you see how religion plays these games. The reality is there is no difference between sins you remember and things you forget. The wages of sin is death. There's no like, you know, the wages of sin is death, except if you can't remember it, you just get five years in jail and 30-day fine. No, no, it's all death. If you're guilty of one, you're guilty of it all. So I hope you feel that you have some problems right now. And, and, and so many people, they think this. And, and, and the reason why, stay with me, is because of a scripture one scripture that every Christian knows, it is almost always quoted completely out of context and falsely interpreted. And I, know, I don't know any verse in the whole Bible that has damaged people as much as this verse has as far as when it comes to not believing that their sins are forgiven. It's an out of context quoted verse. So let's read it. So quiet and so nice. No quick hallelujahs here for this sermon. You're still thinking, you're still tallying the number of sins. Okay, you can leave that now. You probably forgot half of them anyhow, all right? So the verse I'm talking about is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It certainly seems if you just take that verse, you extract it from the surrounding verses. It certainly seems there, or you could interpret it to mean that God doles out forgiveness in proportion to the amount of confessing of sins that you do. Could seem like that. Now, I submit to you, you can leave the verse up there. Uh, I submit to you that John is the last writer of the New Testament. So if it really is so that we just extract this verse or we take this as if you don't confess, implied is that God is not faithful, has not forgiven your sins, well, then we need to change our whole Christianity. These days you can get an app. The early Christians couldn't do that. And I guess every time you have a sin in your mind or thought, you can just put it on the app. We should, we should be completely obsessed with sins. And furthermore, all the great writings in the book of Hebrews, Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, obviously when Paul wrote those, the people who read those books cannot get saved because he never once says you must confess your sins. Not in Romans, not in Hebrews, not in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, not once. So those books... They just collapse like a house of cards. So what does this verse mean? Well, I'm going to submit to you what this verse means. First of all, we sometimes think that all the Bible, the New Testament was written to Christians. You know, and if you study the first century of the church, there were many unbelievers in attendance. There were people with other religions in attendance. And most scholars agree that 1 John was written for Gnostic believers. And there were two things about these Gnostic believers. One, 
they didn't believe that Jesus had come in the flesh. They believed Jesus was a phantom, just like a beam of light you could put your hand right through. And secondly, they didn't believe in sin. So Jesus didn't come in the flesh and didn't believe in sin. So I submit that is who John is writing to. So let's read the context. I start with verse 1. John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. We have touched it with our hands. This life appeared, and we have seen and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John here says, we have touched Jesus. When he came from the Father, he was flesh and blood. We saw him, we touched him. He was not a phantom. And then he says, I write this to you so that you may have fellowship with us. So he's writing to people who they are not in fellowship with. He said, our fellowship is uh, with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. But he says, you, you're not in fellowship with that. And you could read the whole context, but verse 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I'll prove to you in a moment that he, he cannot say that to believers. Because he says later on in the next chapter, 2 John, he says, if you're a believer, you have the truth in you forever. But then he says in verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make God into a liar and his word is not in us. So let me ask you here. Look at me. Let's say I brought a friend up here and say, folks, I want to introduce to you this morning to a Wonderful, a great guy. He's a great friend of mine. Now, he doesn't have fellowship with us. He doesn't believe that Jesus came in the flesh. He doesn't believe that he's ever sinned. He's, this, this friend of mine, he, he's, he makes God a liar. The truth is not in him. He's not in fellowship with us, but he's a great guy. Would you think that I'm introducing another Christian to you? You would say, obviously, you're not. The guy is a great guy. I don't know what's so great about him. Maybe, maybe he's funny. Maybe he's a, he is helpful in other ways. But I know for sure he's not a Christian. He's not in fellowship. He's not with us. He makes God into a liar. He walks in darkness. If I read the whole, you would know right away. It's not a brother in the Lord that I'm introducing. But then I could say to him, I could say, now I'm going to tell you, even though this is how you are, if you confess your sins, if you'll acknowledge that you're a sinner and stop that proud thinking, then God is faithful and just, and he'll forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I could tell him that, right? I can tell you're thinking now. But think of the alternative. Let me finish the exegesis of the scripture first. So then... John goes on and he finishes, goes into the next verse and he says, now my little children, I speak to you. So now he's switching. He's not speaking to the Gnostics anymore. He says, now my little children, don't sin. But if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And then he goes on in, 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 in 2 John, as I already referenced, he says in verse 2, the truth lives in us and will be with us forever. So, so when he's talking about people who don't have truth in them, he's not talking about believers because if you are a believer, you have the truth in you. Jesus Christ is the truth and he lives in you. So I'm trying to take the worm out of your apple because some people get all condemned about that. So they forget Jesus' final sacrifice and think about it. Think about how absolutely illogical it is. If you are saved because you have a good memory to remember all your sins. What if you went to somebody's birthday party and you had an outburst of anger? That's sin. Jesus said that's sin. You hop in your car and you think, well, I got to pray when I get home. I got to acknowledge that to the Lord. But a truck hits you 
and you die instantly. Are you still saved? Because if you don't think you are, I think you got a religion with a pretty thin ice. I wouldn't say, on Christ the solid rock I stand. I would sing, on Christ the thin ice, I'm skating, hoping for the best. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help you to have good mental health. To not be little nervous, nilly, born again people who are not even sure that your sins are forgiven. By one sacrifice, he put away your sins forever. And 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it's not a heavenly soap bar that you're supposed to scrub yourself with every day to just remember the latest. No, you walk in sound mental health, knowing as far as God and I are concerned, I am accepted in the beloved. That doesn't mean that we don't think people should confess their sin. No, we confess sin to one another. We should be very... It should be very easy when we know how much God has forgiven us if we ever hurt somebody else to say, hey, I'm sorry. We're not talking about that. Okay, so that was one of the worms. Let me give you another worm here. Are you with me? What if I don't forgive someone who wronged me? Ooh. What if I don't forgive? And we go to the Lord's Prayer, and it says there in Matthew 6, 12, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Think about that. Do you really want God to forgive you like you forgive your debtors? Now, I don't know if anybody's ever hurt you. Has everybody, anybody ever done you wrong? Don't raise your hand. I imagine if you're over the age of 13, you probably could raise your hand. Everybody done you wrong ever? And you say, because you're a good Christian. You've been taught, oh, you must forgive. So I'm sure you have forgiven. But it, have you totally forgiven? I mean, if that person who hurt you, if they got a promotion and a, and a new house and a new car, would you be happy? Or would you think, oh, if I was God, I, I forgive them, but how would you feel? Is that, is that how you want God to forgive you? Well, he, he did me wrong, and I just, I just don't, I just... You know, I forgive him, but I just, just don't want to see him. Is that, is that how you want God to deal with you? Say, well, I, I, for, I forgave Bertha, but I don't want to see her around. It's getting quiet here. And if I was to read the subsequent verses, which I will not, you can do that yourself. Actually, there it says, if you don't forgive, your heavenly father won't forgive you. Wow. Wow, so it's, uh, it's not finished. It's conditional. And we have to measure your forgiveness, just like if it was dependent on your tears, we have to measure. We're not sure. Have you cried enough? Have you, uh, have you forgiven enough? Uh, we should have a forgiveness thermometer. Maybe on a scale of 1 to 100, you're only at 97, and, uh, and we need to hold that over your head. I speak as a fool. So how do we understand this? When I did one of the teachings, I will teach on God without religion. I will show you very clearly how Jesus had two ministries. Everybody say two. Two preaching ministries. It says in Galatians 4.4 that in the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So one of Jesus' ministries was to redeem those who were under the religious system. Second part of Jesus' preaching ministry was to prophesy about life under the new covenant. That's why Jesus said many times, on that day, on that day, he said, don't tell anybody until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. He was prophesying about what life would be like for us. But much of Jesus' ministry was provoking the people who were bound up in religion. He was provoking them to surrender. So when Jesus met the rich young ruler, and he, and he says, I've done everything. I kept all the commandments. And Jesus said, go and sell what you, what you have and give to the poor. And he says, he went sorrowfully away. Jesus' mission was accomplished. That was what Jesus was doing. He was supposed to make religious, self-righteous people sorrowful and make them walk away and say, I give up. That was the whole point. 
And so much of Jesus' preaching, as we know, and I know you agree with this, even though you look like you don't agree with it, because I can tell by your actions. You know, much of Jesus' preaching, we understand it was Jesus the provocateur against religion. He was not telling you how to live. For example, Jesus said, in one place he said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your foot offends you, cut it off, and hand, cut it off. So I can tell you don't believe in that. Because this room would look like an amputation ward if you did. I know you don't believe it. You don't take Jesus' word seriously. I know that. I know that. You understand in principle what I'm saying here. You, you, because I don't see one one-eyed person. I'm looking at the feet. I can see. I don't see one cut-off foot. And I lift, looked at you. Lift your hand in praise. It looked to me like you had two hands. Look at your neighbor and says, it's hot and heavy in here. <laughs> so obviously you don't take Jesus serious. We understand. You, you, this was that word. We kind of cherry pick, oh, this word I take, but this word, ah, he, he didn't really mean that. He meant something else. No, no. <laughs> Read what he said. So, of course, even the disciples understood that Jesus didn't intend for this to be their behavior because they never had a maiming convention. Let's get together and maim our bodies no, they understood Jesus was provoking religion. He was, he was showing the hopelessness of religion. He said religion is hopeless if that's the way you're going to go. If you're going to try to, by your good works, earn God's favor, then cut it off. If, if that's the way you want to, cut it off. And Paul said the same thing about another body part, which I shall not mention at this time. He said, if that's the way you want to go about it, if you think that's going to make you right, take it all off. So they understood he was provoking them. And, and so you have to look at what Jesus said. When he's provoking people who are so stubborn, they are hooked on their religion, they love their religion, they feel that they're more righteous than others, he just goes like this. But then Jesus talks about, that's another day coming. There's another covenant coming. And on that day, and so when we read the new covenant, here's what it says about forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as God in Christ forgave you. So it's not saying here that, you know, you, God already forgave you. You don't forgive first so that God will forgive you. God forgave you first in Jesus Christ. And, and if you, that's not enough, let's look at it. says Colossians chapter 3, 13. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. It doesn't say forgive and the Lord will forgive you if you really mean it. He says, no, you forgive. But the whole forgiveness process doesn't start with you because you are in a new covenant. It starts with God. God forgave you. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Okay, I got one more worm. Can you handle one more? I'm deworming your apple. Okay. What about keeping short accounts with God through the Holy Communion? You know, that term, some of you been in church long enough, you've heard that term, keeping short accounts with God. It's like an accounting term. You know, it's like in a, in a business, you have accounts payable. And maybe you pay within 30 days. Many companies do and should do, I think. And maybe even more than that, even quicker than that. But you might have some accounts payable. So you, you, you don't want it to be just get all the accounts payable just piling up. You want to pay them, keeping short account. And then we take that uh, bookkeeping term, and we apply it to God. I want to keep short accounts with God. What do you mean keeping short account? Do you think if you only have a couple of, of payables, you're going to be okay? I can remind you again, the wages of sin is death. There is no second sentence of life imprisonment. It's all or nothing. But this is how religion talks. Oh, I'm going to go to church and make it right with God. You are going to make things right with God. Well, this I got to see. You, 
you, you are going to make things right. Okay, well, we have to applaud you. We have to really study you. You are going to make things right. Wow, this I have never seen. And it certainly isn't the gospel. It certainly isn't Jesus. You're going to make things right. If it wasn't so horrible, I would say good luck, which is not a good phrase anyhow. But seriously, you're going to make things right. Oh, Lord, help us. This is how religion talks. And so they say, well, you know, the Holy Communion. That's kind of, some churches do it once a quarter. Some do it once a month. Some do it once a year. No wonder, because it's such a miserable service. We do it every week. <laughs> you, you know, because they treat it like this is where you're supposed to check up on all your sins. Come with your short list. I remember I had just received Christ as my Savior, and I went to a Sunday service in a certain church, and boy, did the preacher know how to condemn people. You know, some preachers are good at condemnation. I mean, that's their specialty. I mean, he was winding up and he was saying, if you're going to take the Lord's table and there's a sin in your life, you could drop dead. He was saying like that. You could drop dead. So I'm pretty smart, you know. Mama didn't raise a dumb boy. I'm sitting in the back. And so when they got to the communion, I slipped out and bought an ice cream. And then I came back in and, ooh, hallelujah. Just in case I missed something. You know, in some places, the communion service is so solemn. It is so, I've been to... Places, you know, where they, they don't only do communion maybe once a year, but they dim the lights. And they have to now, first they have to confess the sins of the nation. They go through the sins of the nation. Then the sins of the city. Then the sins of the family. Then their own individual sins. You can imagine. It gets pretty depressing after a while. And then the preacher says, now, if you feel that you're ready, only if you feel you're ready, Implying many of you are not ready. But if you feel you're one of those who really, you're, you're ready, well then you can now come and take the emblems. And then we look at those people walking up and say, he's ready? Oh, oh, oh. You wouldn't believe what I know about that guy. And, and he feels kind of, oh, I'm ready. Look at me. I'm, I'm one of the, right there he's committing the sin of pride right there. So he's just getting unready as he thinks he's ready. Oh. Everybody say God without religion. Oh, wait, wait, I'm just getting. So, so, so where do we get this idea? Well, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. 27. It says, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat and drink of the cup from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment to themselves. Oh boy, that sounds scary. And especially because we've already interpreted through a certain lens, we can't even read what the verses say anymore. It doesn't say whoever is unworthy. It's not even discussing whether you're worthy or not. I suppose if you wanted to be technical, nobody would ever take the communion if that was the discussion. It's talking about eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Or the King James Version says unworthily. That's an adverb being a word that defines the verb. It's the manner of drinking. Then it says here that uh, they are eating and drinking without discerning the body of Christ. Without discerning what Jesus has done. That he in his flesh took our sins. And they drink judgment on themselves. What judgment is this? Does it say it was God's judgment? Actually it doesn't say that. Nowhere in this place has said God will judge you. In fact, the inference contextually is not that it's judgment from God, but judgment from other people. I'll get to that in a moment. So let's see how Paul explains this. Because we know that they had great divisions in the church. And he says in verse 20, when you come together, is it not the Lord's supper you eat? For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private supper. As a result, one person remains hungry. Another one gets drunk. That's quite a church, Corinth. Uh, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Now, you see, we take the Lord's communion like this. So we are not in danger of, of being sinning in a gluttonous way here this morning when we take the Lord's Savior. Frankly, this cup is not enough for you to get either drunk or gluttonous. Are you, are you happy about that? 
But if you look at how they took the communion, it was a major meal. So what Paul is saying here, he says, I hear in Corinth, you are, you are, you are humiliating the church. You, what, what are you doing? Some of you come early. I suppose it was the wealthier people. They didn't have to work as many hours. They came early, and they're just gorging themselves, and they are drinking. In those days, they drank real wine. We have grape juice here, and they were eating and eating, and they basically passed out. Some of them are drunk. They're sitting in a chair, drunk like a skunk, and just eating. So I can hardly move. I can't even. I'm waddling like a duck here. Then the poorer people come. The poorer people maybe had to work in the field longer. They come and they say like, we're coming for the Lord's table. And it's like somebody's burping over there in his chair. and Somebody else is, is, is like, there's nothing left. And they say, look at those. Look at those hoity-toity people. So they start judging. Look at them. They took all the food for themselves. You know, they, they quit work earlier than we, so they took all the food. Look at that. There's nothing for us. So they're getting under judgment. You see, sometimes you just need to read what the Bible says. <laughs> and, of course, some of them are also dying because they don't understand the blessing of the communion, but probably some of them are having an alcoholic overdose. Or they're eating too much lard. Too many donuts. I don't know what the heck. They're just passing out from heart attacks. I don't know. But, but they're going overboard. And some of them don't. They don't even. So Paul says like this. Let me read it to you. He says in verse 33. Brothers and sisters. When you gather to eat. You should all eat together. Like don't get started if you get there first. And take all the nice, nice expensive food. All the caviar and all that. And you just leave some little stringy uh, uh, spaghetti with no taste to it. Uh, and he said anyone who is hungry should eat something at home. In other words, have a little something to tie you over. Have a little something. So that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. I don't want you to have the Lord's table and you have such division and such disunity that some believers, some of the poorer ones, they say they're, they're judging you and saying, well, you don't care. There's no love in this place. He says, don't do that. But if, if you are that hungry, have a little something. And then wait till everybody's there. And then focus on what the Lord has done that his blood was shed for you, that his body was broken for you. Amen. And so, as I said again, in most churches today, we don't need to worry about this because, frankly, we don't take the Lord's Supper with a huge spread here. We take it in a little wafer like this. So I don't think you're going to be, you know, sinning in that way. Can I get an amen to that? And, but, but there's still principles of this. But I'm saying religion has made this a nasty word. So you can't even enjoy what's supposed to be this ooh-la-la celebration. Look at what Jesus did in his body for me. He took my sin. He took my sickness. By his stripes, I have been healed. He suffered in my place. He is my substitute. He defeated death and hell and the devil. He, he, he did something great. And he said, you're sitting there. Uh, I don't know. I need a little introspection. I need to search. I, I need to search my heart if I'm worthy. You're not, so don't even search your heart. It's not about you being worthy. It's about that he is worthy. And, so, and it's about eating and drinking, not in an unworthy manner. I'm taking the worm out of the apple. Now, I got one more thing. I'm not teaching on this. I just got one more verse because I know some of you are getting nervous. You're saying, oh, he's preaching the gospel too good. What if somebody misunderstands him? Oh, he said, are you misunderstanding me? Oh, no, not me, but I'm just concerned about others. Oh, I see, as long as you're the smart one. I didn't say that we don't confess our faults to one another. I didn't say that. But I did say the truth of the scripture is whether you remember what you did wrong or not, your salvation is not based on what you remember. It's based on what Jesus has done. And let me tell you how to deal with sin. Because sin is a problem. Sin is destructive. Sin can ruin you. Can ruin your career, your future, your family. It, it, it can kill you prematurely. Please don't sin. 
So let me, I'll teach more thoroughly about this sometime. But Paul, in the context of the new covenant, tells us exactly what to do with sin. Let me just read it to you. Just one excerpt from one verse. You could read the whole passage. Ephesians 4.28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer. Everybody say that. He who has been stealing must steal no longer. It says, you, you see here what Paul is talking about is, he says you become a new creation in Christ. You're new. So if you've been stealing, you know, say if you've been stealing, you need to really search your heart and you need to do penance. Oh, you need to grovel, preferably cry for 10 minutes. He says, no, the solution if you've been stealing is quit stealing. I said, well, I, I, I just can't help myself. Oh, that's a lie. Yes, you can. Everybody say, yes, you can. Maybe before you became a new creation, before you were awakened to the reality of Christ in you, maybe then you could have said, I can't stop myself. But now you have Christ living in you and you can't stop yourself. So the solution, sin, sin is terrible. It'll destroy you. Leave that verse up there. Leave that verse up there. Let him that stole steal no more. Let him who gossiped gossip no more. Let he who committed adultery commit adultery no more. Let he who was or she who was hooked on pornography be hooked no more. You can just keep applying it. This is the new covenant remedy. Instead of beating people over the head and make them feel like worms, like you are nothing, you're a nobody, and you're so bad and feel like you're so unworthy, that is not gospel psychology. That is religion that comes like a smudgy, dirty, bad-smelling worm into the beautiful apple that God has provided for you. You see, you have the power. So maybe you're hooked on something and people say, oh, you need, you, you know, you can't break this. Yes, you can. Because you have Christ living in you. What we teach here in this church and what every Christian church ought to teach, I say on the basis of the Bible, is that you are a new creation in Christ. The things you found yourself incapable of doing because you were so weak, you now have God's spirit living in you. You are strengthened by the Holy Spirit and you can rise up if you thought, I could never rise up. I'm such a low life. I'm so low down. I, I, you can rise and stand on your hind feet and say, yes, I can, because Christ lives in me. Hallelujah. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. All right. Okay. I'm quitting there. To be continued. Even more dangerous next Sunday morning. Okay. So, so just uh, hang there with me. Your sins are forgiven. Yours, no wonder when they went out and preached this. In a world of religion where they were dispensing weekly allotments of forgiveness. Sacrifices had to be made. Prayers to deities. Sacrifices to spirit beings. And they went out and said the whole thing is a slam dunk. It's done. Your sins have been put away. Receive the gift of God. Receive the forgiveness of sin. Say yes to it. Change your thinking and receive the new life. I tell you, no wonder it was such a shock to the whole religious psyche. It shocked them all. And, and they, they, it, it turned the world upside down. Now just because, well, I don't know. Just look at me. It's amazing. You can go to church your whole life and you don't hear the gospel. You hear some you know, misty, clouded, a little bit about Jesus God thrown in. But you don't hear really the clear, crystal clear gospel. And so you may say, yeah, I think I changed my mind. Repent is to change your mind. I, you know, most of the people who repented in the book of Acts, they were deeply religious people. They were already praying people. But they repented to receive the gift that was extended from God. I receive it. It's too good to say no to it. Lift your hands all over this room. Father, I thank you right now for your great love. I thank you for the peace that comes to our heart. 
I thank you for strong mental health in this church and everybody watching our television program, anybody that we touch in any way. I thank you for strong mental health with assurance that all is well, not because I crossed my T's and dotted my I's, but because of what Christ has done. Everything is good. Look at me. Take your hand down. If you say, Peter, i like to receive this gift of forgiveness of sin. No more reliance on my religious little this and little that. I want to receive it. Lift your hand way up high. If that's you, let me see you. Beautiful. There are several of you. Can we just pray this? Everybody lift your hand. I see hands over here, others. But everybody pray. Would you say, Heavenly Father, God, I want you. I don't want the religion. Jesus, I embrace you. Thank you that you took my sins. You died in my place. You defeated death and hell. And I receive this forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, give the Lord a big praise. Give the Lord. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And now we're going to take the Lord's table. Can you see why I wanted to wait till the end? Just in case there was somebody sitting there still with that dark, gloomy, despairing, religious, penty religious, charismatic religious, evangelical religious, self-condemning attitude. This is a moment of celebration. This is, we're going to partake worthy, in a worthy manner. What is a worthy manner? We recognize it's about Jesus. It's not about what you have done or haven't done. That would be to drink and eat unworthily. It's not about what we have done. It's about what he has done. He has done something wonderful. I want you to just take the cup that you received on the way in. Put your hand on it. Father, I thank you right now. Even though we don't have a big dinner like they did in Corinth. Lord, maybe we should sometime. But oh, thank you, Lord. I thank you now that these emblems are blessed. I thank you that we have victory. We have a celebration that Jesus Christ has conquered death and hell. I thank you that there's no intimidation. There's no fear. There's no cowering. There is joy because of what you have done. Hallelujah. I want you to take that wafer. And I remind you that Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. He did it for you. Imagine that. He did it for you, that by his stripes you are healed. Take the bread right now. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You can even play a little bit there for me right now. I like, I don't know why I like music when I take the communion. It doesn't bring the anointing, but it makes it feel good. And I like to feel good. But I think about Jesus, that his blood was shed. Would you take the cup right now in the name of Jesus? Thank you, Lord. Lift your hand and let's rejoice. Oh, this is joy time. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. Lift your hand right now. We worship you, Jesus.